This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, welcome to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. It's been forever as usual, but all of a sudden, this is our first secure in place lockdown coronavirus podcast. So um, we're hoping that we're just going to turn out like a hundred of these while all of us are stuck at home. Um, we're all working in our underwear currently because no one has to go to work right now. Um, anyways, I've, I've got Kyle Kimbrell on here from our team, Zach Dunkel and, and Ben Weatherford. And um, it's awesome to have everyone together here to get back on the podcast. We're going to speak today about the risk of clots, DTEs, PEs, DVTs, whatever you want to call it, with blood flow restriction, especially because we, we do this on the clinical patient and we do a lot of it on the post-surgical patient or the post-injured patient. And what is the deep dive literature really say on that and, and should you be concerned or not? So, fellas, what's up? First, first things first, we usually do um, where you've been, where you're going. Right now, I'm, I'm going basically to my mailbox and back. Um, that's about it. I might be going around a zombie apocalypse trying to find toilet paper soon. I'm in a house with three women, um, one woman and two little kids. And um, we're, we're rolling through toilet paper like two rolls a day right now, baby. It's crazy. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> you got to get the, what's the, the SPS of those rolls, Johnny? You got to know the SPS. Yeah, right. It was Jimmy Kimmel or someone, one of the guys said, uh, he goes and, and buys supplies at CVS because the receipt is long enough. It's a roll of toilet paper for about a week. So I might have That's to go. That's very accurate. Yeah. Oh, how's things, man? Everybody hanging in there? Clinics are closing left and right. We're going to have um, this week, we're going to be interviewing some of our friends um, around the country who have clinics and going over how they're doing BFR, but also, you know, just kind of talking with them about what the heck's going on right now in this crisis and, Zach, have y'all completely shut down seeing patients? Are you are you locked in? Um, by by the time this thing airs, we're going to take a two week break. Two week break, yeah, and that's yeah. tough. I mean, we I know folks. I know Kyle. We know folks who they basically have had to lay off staff already um, because of this. So yep. we're feeling for everybody out there, man. This this sucks ass. Who knew it would get so bad? Um, I think we had a clue, but but so bad on the economy right now is 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 the killer. So. Um, so yeah, no, going nowhere. I was supposed to be with the Philadelphia Eagles next week. Um, I was excited to go up there and see that and, and they're on lockdown. Um, but past things just to talk about, we do have some new papers that have come out, um, current reviews in musculoskeletal medicine. We did a paper on new technologies for rehabilitation with the United States Olympic team folks, um, as well as, um, the folks out of uh, university of Colorado, who did everything from how we're using technologies for trauma to sports medicine to the elderly total joint patients. So that is, we have a open access link um, that we can probably put in our show notes. But if you want to get that, if you click the link, the CRMM gave us the ability to let people get that paper for free. It's going to expire eventually. And then we had a paper come out on blood flow restriction for ACLs in a special uh, journal on ACLs from Aspatar, um, which is one of the premier sports med groups in the country. And that is, that's still free to get, right? Have you seen Kyle or Ben? You can just click on yeah. and get it. Okay. Sometimes it's wonky downloading it. 
okay. but also if people just email us, we we can share. But yeah, yeah, it's, we it's can free. put a link in the show notes. It's a man. That's a slick journal they put out. It's it really cool, is. Cool, cool pictures. It's very very um, pleasing to the eye. Like yeah. the way they put it together. <laughs> they they yeah. do well over their marketing. Yeah. It's got a lot of social buzz as well. The we have the APTA um, instructional course lecture. Um, I just spoke with them yesterday. That should be coming out pretty soon. So people can go to the American Physical Therapy Association and, and get basically a giant book um, of, of the latest kind of information on blood flow restriction. And then I think they've we, discounted their stuff right now too, Johnny. Like I, I saw a deal from the APTA yesterday, the ortho section, that all those independent study courses are discounted right now. So it's, um, there's, yeah. there's a lot of really great content that you can get through that ortho section through those independent we study go courses. On, yeah, if you're bored, go on there and, and support the APTA and everyone else during this time right now. Yeah, and once it gets out, we'll put some social out there. Um, and Dr. Luke Hughes and Dr. Stephen Patterson were on that with us as well. So I think it's, it's really good. And then we're filming tomorrow. We've partnered with the University of Southern California and filming blood flow restriction for their students. Um, and that's gonna be filmed remotely. We were gonna do it in person and film, but uh, remotely. So trying to help support the students so they can keep learning and get in the introductory kind of training on it, so. I feel like, I feel like after we film that, Johnny, at least for me, they're gonna be like, you know what, Kyle, we can stick to the podcast. You get that radio for face, face for radio thing going, you know, so we'll yeah. see. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if I can deliver. Well, yeah, you can, you can probably do some sort of filter or something. Um, oh, I can get like a cardboard and yeah, yeah, that'd work. I do that. Make that happen. Yeah. They told us to wear jewel tones. I had no freaking idea what a jewel tone is. Um, so I, I had to ask them. And so you're supposed to wear clothes that are the color of jewelry, um, which I, I, I pretty much have Batman colors like black and gray. Yeah. No, so, I don't know many dudes that have jewel toned clothes, which is why it was very nice of the way they put it. Like, yeah. Like they were trying to educate both sexes, but the reality was this was all geared towards men. Like yeah, most men have no idea. I have my, I have like one green button up St. Patrick's <laughs> day outfit. So I might just wear that St. Patrick's day shirt tomorrow. You gotta wear the, you gotta wear the hat too. No, you can't just wear the shirt. You guys got any information that you want to put out before we jump into blood clots and blood flow restriction? So, okay. So let's jump on into this. This is probably like one of the biggest early questions that, that I got when we were starting to look at doing this in the Department of Defense. And, and then when we started talking to people about it um, a, a long time ago, it was like, yeah, but tourniquets cause blood clots. You're seeing post-operative patients or, or post-trauma patients. You're causing blood clots with this. And so we'd gone through all these kind of safety analysis with our tourniquet folks. We looked at the tourniquet literature. We looked at the blood flow restriction literature. We looked at the clotting literature. And by the point that we moved it into our patient population, we really, this was like one of the least of our concerns was, was blood clots. And, and, and it still is. Um, but, but now we kind of want to go down this road of how we came to it. So I think first, let's just talk about the incidents, what the terminology is, VTE versus PE versus um, DVT and, and what those kind of mean. So you guys kind of want to start steering down that path? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that was interesting to me is the overall incidence rate, you know, looking at, at some of these papers that are trying to create a rough estimate for the incidence of, you know, a venous thromboembolism or, you know, DVT, PE type of event. Um, you know, one of the estimates that seems to be used pretty consistently is one to two per thousand person years. Yeah. And I had to look, look up what that meant. Cause I'm like, well, all right, what does it mean to be a, have a thousand person years? 
So essentially it's basically like saying if you average it out, it's about one to two events per thousand people per year. Right. Um, so 0.1 to 0.2% chance of having this happen, which was a little higher than I expected. So it was, you know, something that I think don't really come across a whole lot or I haven't. So it was kind of surprising to me to see that kind of number just yeah, as I a, think on in the, general. On the high end, so an incidence is around 150,000 deaths per year is, is kind of what I've seen. Um, I think how you had one on there that was around 90 something thousand. Yeah, I had 60,000 uh, deaths in the U.S. per year. So yeah. 120 kind of sound probably in the ballpark, I'd guess. Yeah, another thing that I saw that was pretty interesting is, you know, it's when they were talking about this in some of the review papers, it's besides heart attack and stroke, you know, hemorrhagic stroke, this is the most common cardiovascular event that they, you know, consider to be a, of, of danger of some sort, you know. Right. So, again, more common than I really gave it credit for. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about earlier, you know, because I, I saw a lot of big boom trauma and, you know, when you fracture a bone and you get vascular injury, um, there's, there's a much higher incidence rate. And so we, we did see them during the wars more than when I was in the civilian sector. Um, but still really rare, you know, you talk to most therapists and Hey, how many that you've seen, so, you know, Zach use the right term symptomatic DVTs. Have you seen, or a patient that's actually thrown a PE majority of the folks are like none, one, two, yeah. maybe. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, like a, a, a symptomatic DVT um, is, I would say, pretty rare. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that later on. But yeah, it's just not, they don't really become symptomatic a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. And a DVT is probably staring us in the face all the time. We just don't see it because it's not symptomatic, yeah. especially if you have an older individual who was in the hospital. And we'll, we'll talk about kind of some screening tools that you can use to kind of see what the risk factors are. But, you know, just being 61 to 74 years old, you're on a screening tool, you've already got two points up against you and that puts you at low risk. Um, if you move into three to four points, then you get into moderate risk. So, you know, if you, if you add surgery to that, you, you just added two more points. So you went into a moderate risk um, of at least having a, a potential DVT again, that's the thing though, is a DVT isn't really an issue until it becomes a PE. Then we got a problem, this, this pulmonary embolism, then that's what kills people. So what we're really wanting to look at is these things might be here, um, or if they're not there, are we making them occur because of blood flow restriction? Um, and, and then I guess the most kind of prescient thing is the post-surgical patient. Um, it, it seems like it goes up quite a bit. What did you say, Kyle, earlier? A hundredfold? I think someone said that. I might have it here. It goes up a hundredfold post-surgical. Um, and the highest risk is the first six weeks after surgery. So that's when blood flow restriction is supposed to be done, is the early acute phases. Um, we think that's where it has the biggest bang for its buck because you can't lift heavy during those phases. And that's when we want to start blood flow restriction. Any thoughts or things you want to add on what y'all seen on incidence rates or risks? I think that that number that you mentioned comes from a, a paper by uh, Sweetland, uh, one that I think I, I sent to everybody. And it was a huge sample size. I mean, they had, it was mainly geared toward 
middle-aged women in the UK, but their sample was like 947,000 plus. So it was clo close to a million women that they tracked over, over a few years time span. Uh, and, and the number that I saw that kind of stuck with me was if they had an inpatient surgery where they're going to be staying in the hospital for a little bit, they had a 70 times higher risk uh, for having a, a VTE in the first six weeks after surgery. If it was an outpatient procedure, it was a 10 times higher risk during the first six weeks. So essentially, yeah. it was like the first 12 weeks post-surgically, there was a higher risk. Beyond mm -hmm. that, it seemed to really taper off. But the highest risk was you know, really within that first six weeks, which you mentioned is kind of prime time for BFR to really have the, the best effect to stave off a lot of these things we, we talk about all the time. Right. Um, and right. So it's really... It, that increased risk is it, is it really something that we're going to see like we've talked about it, a symptomatic you know clot during that time period obviously it's possible but um, seems like maybe from from what we see clinically not as not as common yeah you know and again if you look at the rehab world how many people screen for it you know other than you just look oh is it hot swollen you know anything that's just staring you in the face but we're not taught to look for these in school and and we don't screen for them um, primarily again because you know, it just didn't seem like the incidence was that high, but it does look like there there is a potential high incidence. So just doing heavy exercise or exercise or whatever with that patient, um, there could be something lingering there. So people do have to be aware of it. I think one of the things I, I took out of one of the papers, approximately 50% of patients who develop a clinically diagnosed VTE will have three or more acquired risk factors present at the time of diagnosis. And these primarily are um, 48 hours of immobility in the preceding month. They've been in the hospital, they've had surgery, they have a malignancy, or they have an infection within the past three months. So those are kind of the, the key factors for getting um, not a hereditary factor, but you've got a clinically kind of based factor that, that brought this on to you. So with the BFR literature, we can do this and we do this in our course and there's this big sweep that you can say like, okay, how many reported clotting events have we seen in the literature, which is really one case study. And it was, <laughs> we can go into that case study and it's, it's a really kind of screwed up case. The totality of the literature, there's really nothing. How many reported BFR clots have we had, reported to us at least, who probably are seeing the most BFR right now done clinically? I I've, I've, haven't seen any come across us, none come across our medical device manufacturer. Um, and, and so if you're looking at those two things and you're like, well, we're not really seeing it kind of from this big 10,000 foot view, but then what has exactly been studied and looked at it? So people always reference these survey studies that were done. Um, and, and on these survey studies, how many people have reported a clot um, to, the, to the person being surveyed? And so one of those survey studies is, is pretty good. Um, and it was done and I was part of the people they surveyed. Stephen Patterson and Chris Bradner did it. They actually asked clinicians, you know, just report these things to us. The one that gets cited a lot is, is probably the worst one, and it's the, the one that was done in Japan where they asked fitness professionals, basically, you know, just tell us what, you, what you've seen over time by doing blood flow restriction in a, in a fitness type setting. I'm not sure how many people who are personal trainers or in a fitness setting are having patients 
you know, they were reporting things like, oh, there was a 0.01% increase in increased intracranial pressure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Where did, you, where did you get that from, man? It was like the, you know, I forgot how many years they went back and looked at it. Anyways, that being said, their incidence rate from that one, which looked at, you know, a lot of people they surveyed, um, was less than the incidence of a clot in the general population for the people that had done BFR. So that was kind of one that a lot of people just kind of said, well, yeah, see, it's less than the general population with this, but that's not good science. That's, that's a poorly done survey. Um, but, but once again, that's, that's one way that we've looked at it. Do you guys have any other thoughts before we start kind of getting deeper into what the actual BFR literature says and what we know from the, the physiological mechanisms, at least on incidence or risk or things like that? Yeah, I would say there's been a couple studies that have looked uh, either at this acutely or over a training period, and we just really haven't seen any of the markers elevated um, that would that would lead us to believe that we're going to potentially increase the risk. Um, and, and in fact, I'm sure we'll get to it. But one of the things that you see just with tourniquets in general, um, whether that be in the OR or um, with BFR exercise, is this increase in tissue plasminogen activator. And that's that's one of the big things that you see even in the OR is you know, we see this substantial or significant decrease in blood loss during the surgery, but the group that has a tourniquet on actually has a significant increase in uh, blood loss in the drains following the surgery. And we, they really think it's a result of this increase in TPA, which would basically break up the clot. Um, so all, all in all, like when you read those systematic reviews and whatnot, the, the total blood loss during the surgery is about the same. Right. So... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we can just jump into that. What we've seen from all the studies that have measured for blood markers of clotting, none of them have shown any signs of clotting, right? Yeah. Either acutely or throughout a training period. Yeah. So acutely means that you did it one time and they measured blood pre and post and none of the markers for coagulation increased or chronically means that they've done BFR for weeks and measured blood markers for um, coagulation and they didn't increase. So that's, that's already, okay, great. That's great information to know. And you know what that jibes with? The tourniquet literature. The tourniquet literature also hasn't shown an independent relationship to tourniquets causing clots. You know, that's the thing. People always think it's, you know, the tourniquets causing the clot. It's, well, no, it's, it's these things I just mentioned, you know, stasis, your age, do you have a history of clots? Um, did you have a surgery? Did you have vascular damage? Did you break a bone and, and have potential increased in clotting factors from that? And then TPA is the next one. So TPA is basically liquid plumber. Um, and it, it's what helps break down clots in your body. And TPA significantly goes up in pretty much every study I think I've ever seen this try and measure it. Um, there's quite a few. Right. What I what I want to do then is kind of start going into the I, I think here's the best papers for this right now. The JOSPT paper from Kyle Hackney's group, um, who's at North Dakota State. Kyle Hackney um, did BFR work when he was a postdoc at NASA. He's a friend of ours. Um, he's still doing BFR work and some of the studies that um, we're helping with him support up there. Um, Colin Bond is a lead author. They had an orthopedic surgeon on there, Dr. Noonan. 
who's the team physician for North Dakota State. Um, this paper in JOSBT is probably one of the best reviews um, that I've seen on this and really goes deep into explaining the mechanisms. We'll put a link to the paper in our show notes. And so if you're like, I, I want one good go-to source, um, I think that's a good one. We have our position stand paper, um, and I wrote the, um, the VTE and the potential for clotting with BFR. I, I was the lead on, on, on that section. It was one of them I wrote. Um, I, think, I think the JOSBT paper, Colin Bond's paper, is better than mine. I'm kind of embarrassed now, real mine. After, I was like, man, I should have <laughs> like, stepped my game up, man. But I, had, I had multiple sections I was dealing with. Um, and then our techniques in orthopedics, um, which we can also link to. Chris Bradner out of Aspatar wrote a safety section and, and really did a good little nice summary of potential clots um, and issues that can go with that. So I, here's what I, I'm going to kind of read some quotes from the GOSPT paper. And, and here's what I, what I like about it. As they said, they, they broke down what you said, Zach. This is what the BFR paper said as far as what we know from clotting um, and as far as what we know from TPA. It doesn't look like that's an issue but we don't have this like just epidemiologic paper that's tracked all these BFR, you know, sessions and what's the incidence rate. So we don't have an incidence rate of clotting. As far as we know, it's pretty much almost zero um, from what we've seen, but no one's published that data. So then what they did is they said, well, then let's go into the mechanisms that cause clotting. And so they, we had, I, had to, I had to look up because I've never known how to say this word, Vircose triad. It's spelled V-I-R-C-H-O-W. We were taught it in school. We've all been calling it Verschau. Um, <laughs> but go Google Scholar, how do you say Verschau in German? Because it's a German physiologist. <laughs> and it's Vircose. Okay, so everybody learned something from this today. I think it's got to be fear at the front because V in, in German is going to be an F sound, right? Really? Are you serious? What? If, if what? You, what? V, what? VW, VW is foul they. I mean, I'm just saying. It's VI. I, I know that, but Ben, you were holding on to this little nugget until we got on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like we went all through this in the pre lead up, yeah. and you just held that out. You're waiting. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? I worked my ass off. Enunciations <laughs> of this today. Pre, this pre sounds like looking for you know yeah, like this, some this sort of Rosetta Stone before we get on here, trying to figure yeah. out how to pronounce this. And you knew all along. For yeah. for today's podcast, it's Verco. All right, so I'll get Alex Franz or or someone over in Germany that we work with. I'm still going to say Verchow. I mean, that just makes it easier. It looks like Verchow. But here's Verchow. Basically, okay. So he's an old German. Um, who came up with the mechanisms. It's, it's a triad of like, these are the mechanisms that would cause a clot. Um, and so there was some debate and did he actually really come up with it? And, and it's, been, it's been kind of redefined over time. Uh, but basically it's this, stasis, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability. I, I can't freaking talk today. Um, those are the triad. So if you're increasing those, then you're increasing the potential to have a clot. Okay, so then we can go deep dive. Does BFR start to increase any of these triad, um, triad factors here? All right, so the first one, stasis. Let me, let me read a quote. 
There's no doubt that BFR causes a temporary partial restriction of blood flow. Indeed, the goal of this modality is to initiate hypoxia and metabolic stress by limiting arterial inflow of oxygenated blood and venous outflow of blood-containing metabolites. Most individuals associate stasis with tourniquets, such as those used in the operating room or the battlefield to prevent significant blood loss and save a life. Although the acute use of a tourniquet in the absence of other factors is not necessarily associated with VTE. So what they're saying there is, okay, we're not talking about stasis that I'm laying around. We're talking about stasis that I'm blocking the blood. All right. Most people say a tourniquet used in the operating room creates stasis and thus causes a clot. Although when you look at the literature, it pretty much states that is not a, a producer of a clot. Right. I fumbled around that. Any, anything y'all want to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the important things that, you know, that bond paper went on to say right afterward is BFR from a stasis standpoint is typically done with exercise, right? So you typically have movement, you have the muscle pump, you have all these other things along with that, you know, temporary restriction of blood flow that isn't necessarily causing stasis that further kind of protects us with, with BFR. And that's where BFR, if, if tourniquets in themselves aren't even causing the, the stasis and the clots, the, the next quote exactly been BFR cuff inflation pressure is typically between 40 and 80% of limb occlusion pressure, which allows for some blood flow to be maintained. This is way lower than the 300 millimeters of mercury routinely used in the operating rooms for lower extremity surgeries. So we don't, we're not even causing close to the stasis pressures, right? That they the 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 full occlusion pressures that they do in surgeries. Correct. Furthermore, yeah. using the standard set of reps and that are prescribed for BFR, basically what we put on a position stand, you're typically only going to be under cuff inflation for about five to ten minutes. Right. They just said, did say you might do additional exercises, but the cuff will be deflated between them. That's an important point there. These dummies out there who are like, yeah, just keep the cuff on while you do five, six, seven different exercises. Well, then you are increasing your stasis. But with BFR, again, we're, we're typically, it's about a six minute bout if you're doing a strength exercise with it. So that's way less. The tourniquet timeout time is two hours, right? Yep. And you're that's because of the stasis. That's because of the reperfusion. Reperfusion, ischemic injury. Right. It's not stasis. It's not stasis. Yeah. That's exactly it. I think the key too is like all these, all these cases where you, where they talk about stasis, the examples that they give are atherosclerosis. So there's pooling of the blood. It's these prolonged exposures to stasis, not these intermittent exposures. I mean, if anything, BFRs, you could argue that it would assist in limiting stasis, whether it be the tourniquet, the IPC or, or BFR, et cetera. It's, it's a manipulation of what's happening within the limb. So. Yeah, they, I think they, they hit on that in that paper as well. And then um, you also get, I mean, with the IPC, even when it's passive, and if you do go to full occlusion for say five minutes, you know, you get these um, vasodilating effects with that as well. Um, and potentially that could help move in, move blood flow into and out of the limb. This is what you described, Kyle. Yeah. And I, I have that, to dumb this way down in my head. Like, let me, let me 
tell y'all what here I'm saying. Here we go. Here we go. Let me let me let me bring us back down to the earth here a little. Don't stop using medical terms. Yeah, like uh, these multi-syllabic words, I can't handle them. Um, but I, I just think uh, <clears throat> that it doesn't make a ton of sense that the human body would try not to survive. You know, like if you expose it to a stimulus that is potentially deadly, if prolonged, um, it makes no sense that the body's response, once you remove that stressor, that it would release things that would make that situation worse. It's just like, you don't see the human body do that with regard to anything. I, I walk outside to go to my truck in the California sun and I don't have a cap on, I get a little bit sunburned on the top of my head as I'm basically an albino and bald, you know? Um, and that is my body's response to try not to die. Cause if I stayed out in the sun all this time, um, I, I would die. And, and we just see it so many different, with so many different stressors um, that I, I think like, I have to kind of dumb it down in my head. Like, Oh, this is just, this is just my body trying to not die is all it is. Yeah. But this isn't even that bad of a stress, you know, what we're talking about with BFR. Right. And, and I, I like that IPC scenario, you know, kind of analogy they use. So intermedic pneumatic compression, you go in the hospital, they basically put tourniquets on to big, long, pumpy things to start pumping your blood back and forth to do two things, to increase the muscle pump. And also what you mentioned, Zach, to, to get the NO cascade going. So basically, when blood is pushed back and forth through the reperfusion, that nitric oxide will get released and that causes vasodilation, which is exactly what we're doing with BFR. And that's that increase in NO that we see. Right? Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, that paper, I got a little confused at first when I was reading it with IPC being thrown around that, you know, they were talking about intermittent pneumatic compression as opposed to ischemic preconditioning, which, I know. you know, very, very different thoughts oh, there, but kind of, you know, similar in some ways as far as yeah. this kind of inflation deflation going on. Yeah. yeah. They mentioned it later on in the paper and I was thinking IPC the whole time, ischemic preconditioning. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I don't think that's true. And I was like, oh yeah, intermediate pneumatic compression. Yeah. It's a good analogy. Uh, yeah. It really is. It, and, and then what the, the muscle pump thing is very interesting because the muscle pumps, the main thing that we're looking at. So when you're doing BFR, you're using low occlusive pressures, you're, you're um, allowing blood flow to go in and the patients are typically moving. Even our self-swelling protocols, we're still having patients do isometrics or e-stem or ankle pumps or something. I mean, it's very rare that we're telling people to just lay there and do nothing with it on um, from a self-swelling protocol. And so I, they did throw, you know, they use, they preach our Bible on this and I, and I it, everything they use in there is exactly what we've been teaching forever. Um, that one additional benefit of using a wider cuff is that it encompasses a larger volume of soft tissue other than the lower required pressure. And then other than the lower required pressures from using that wider cuff, it's these me mechanical and biomechanical benefits that may be greater than a narrow cuff. So basically the wider cuffs are almost even more like intermittent pneumatic compression that you're getting this kind of muscle pumping effect. And while the compressive stimulus of the cuff during BFR is not as repetitive as that during IPC, it's plausible that combining the effects of a single compressive force from the BFR cuff with the cyclic nature of the muscle contractions during resistance exercise may enhance the ejection of blood from the vasculature of the lower extremity after cuff deflation. To this effect, some evidence suggests that BFR facilitates a chronic enhancement in vascular function 
and blood flow compared to just low intensity training alone. So we're probably even helping the vasculature when we do it. Anything else y'all can think on stasis? Um, like I, I, if stasis is the main concern with a tourniquet and if you're looking at it from that perspective, I think stasis is the, the easiest one to say, well, these are all the reasons why we're not creating stasis and we're, and we're being beneficial. Yeah, it seems to be the most modifiable of those risk factors as well. You know, yeah. ho hopefully people are getting education on why they need to move after surgery. And, you know, hopefully not too much of the uh, physician-imposed or self-imposed restriction of, of movement happening uh, after after surgery right right i'm not the I'm not other issue right is now, endothelial but... injury yeah okay so you, you i think you're headed down that road johnny that was one of the I, I felt like the the bond paper addressed that at some point like talking about is there a contribution of the tourniquet to like an endothelial injury which i thought was an interesting connection to draw not something that i felt like i had heard anybody do um, that pressure from that, if it's spread over a wide region and it's controlled versus a narrow, a narrow area, um, that potentially might lead to some sort of endothelial injury. So that they were saying that a narrow would be better from an endothelial injury perspective. Oh no, I meant, I meant worse. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, like a wide contour, you know, controlled would be better, um, from that perspective. Well, yeah, so that you're exactly right. And, and I, I think I pulled a quote from it. So the big thing with endothelial injury first is why it would cause a clot. So with almost any surgery, there's going to be some sort of vessel injury. The bigger surgeries, the bigger trauma, the worse vessel injury. And those are how the clots rise in those groups. So there's a higher incidence of total knee and total hip clots. And it's not just age, it's also because those are big surgeries with retraction um, that, that cause vascular injury. When you have a vascular injury, the first thing your body does is it starts to form a clot to heal itself. And so then you've got a clot that's formed and you've got a greater incidence of a VTE event happening. Even arthroscopic surgeries, um, there's gonna be some mild vessel injury. The problem too is that when you have a tourniquet on, for several hours at full occlusion, then you, you start to get ischemic cell death and all those factors with ischemia, whenever you unleash the tourniquet and you get a reperfusion, that causes endothelial stress and, and endothelial damage on the cell wall. And that damage also is known to lead to clotting. So those are the endothelial kind of factors um, that, that we have to take into effect. Um, so what do you guys, after reading through the different studies on that, what are your thoughts on the endothelial injury? Like you mentioned earlier, with fractures, with any kind of surgery, it, there's going to be some sort of endothelial injury there, you know, at least keeping it in mind as far as the risk. But again, it, it seems like for this to be problematic or symptomatic, you know, we're going to have something kind of staring us in the face, showing that there's there's something going on, whether that's a you know, unexplained swelling, pain, redness, warmth, you know, something along those lines, uh, kind of leading us to believe that there's a, a DVT or VTE there. Uh, but it seems like, you know, for most people on the orthopedic side, there's going to be some sort of endothelial injury there. 
Right. hundred percent. Um, yeah. And so just taking more kind of quotes that they mentioned on this, this is going back to what you said, Kyle, nevertheless, the controlled use of a wide partially occluding cuff. So basically make sure you personalize it to the patient, which is they're preaching our language again, during a proper prescription of BFR, luckily would only increase the risk of endothelial damage slightly above a trivial risk that's already associated with traditional resistance exercise. Yeah, and then I was just going to say the the one um, relatively long long term training study was the ten week study in the elderly population, where one did hit and then the other one did just did low intensity BFR exercise, and you actually see um, uh, an adverse change in arterial compliance. Um, in the group who did hit versus no change in arterial compliance in the BFR group. So, you know, from there, you know, it doesn't look like we're doing vascular damage. Um, and then you can take a look from a marker standpoint when you look at reactive oxygen species and this, yeah. this change in oxidative stress um, within the system. We don't see that upregulated, um, whether that's five sets of an exercise to failure um, immediately after that, nor do we see it elevated at any time point. And um, th that specific study that did that, and they, when they measured that, there was no difference whether we had a, a cuff on and did that exercise or did it under free flow conditions um, at a low intensity. So, you know, all in all, the data that we have indicates that we're really not causing a vascular um, insult. Um, and then over a long-term training period, we don't get that adverse um, stiffening of the artery either. Right. Yeah. So beautiful, especially for our elderly patient. But yeah, that's a great point. Looking at all the reactive oxygen species, kind of totality of literature, it doesn't look like BFR increases it. So we're probably not putting endothelial stress. Um, the other thing, you know, that they, they did mention in this paper, there's a lot of clinical trials going on right now. And so far, no adverse events have been reported. You know, one of the big populations with this is our femur fracture trial because a femur fracture is associated, it's a very high energy. Um, and to break a long bone, that high energy, you get all sorts of vascular damage as well. I, I think we're 178 patients into it and we haven't had one reported adverse event as far as a VTE. We haven't had a reported adverse event anything other than patients saying BFR is hard as hell um, <laughs> and trying to get the damn patients to come in for all their treatments. But, but haven't seen anything in a high energy, lower extremity trauma model as well. So from causing stress to the vascular system, I don't feel there's any concern. So that's two of the cow's triad that we're not having to worry about, stasis and endothelial. Um, the other one is hypercoagulability. And so that is basically the increase in, in blood clotting that you get typically from hereditary factors. So this is where we got to go into it because we've been asked this question multiple times, um, things like factor five. And so I, I know there's quite a few papers that everyone kind of read up on before this. Can you guys go into what factor five is or maybe what some of these hypercoagulable, coagulatable, I'm gonna fucking give up, freaking give up talking today. <laughs> Things. There goes the rating. I know, damn it. <laughs> so going to factor five at least and, and kind of what this is. So these are the hereditary, I've got a condition that makes me get clots, right? I get hypercoagulable. I, I get an increase in, in blood products. 
So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and then you guys come in. Um, so factor five is kind of the most common one. It's thought to impact about 5% of the U S population. Um, and, and in general, there's, there's two different ways you can, you can have this mutation of factor five. So there's, uh, I think I have this right. There's a factor five deficiency, which is like the opposite of a factor five mutation or factor five mutation will also be called factor five Leiden. Um, and that's the one that increases your risk for clotting. Uh, if you are heterozygous for that, meaning that one gene has this mutation and the other does not, then that increases your risk about five to seven fold. If you're homozygous for it, essentially meaning that both parents have this gene and it's going to be transferred to you, um, then your risk for clot goes up 80 fold. Um, and, and so it's thought that, um, you will at least have one clot within your lifetime. If you, if you are homozygous for this factor five mutation, um, you know, there's a lot of debate under within all the different papers that we pulled in terms of, should you test for it? Should you not in general, the, the opinion, I feel like I felt like I was seeing over and over was that you shouldn't really be tested for it unless you've um, had a, a, if you know, like say both parents definitely have it. Um, and if after an injury or, or going into surgery, there wasn't like a, a prophylactic reason to very often that you should really be tested for that. Um, it does look like if you have that factor five, that your risk for a clot goes up exponentially after an injury, um, which of course would also be tied to surgery. So I think, you know, on, on our side, um, we might even go so far as to say, and you guys please jump in here if I'm overstepping, but, um, if someone, even if you, if you know someone's heterozygous for this, you know, not homozygous, the really nasty one, but, um, heterozygous for this and they, and they have an injury and a surgery, it probably makes a lot of sense to not do BFR on that person. Um, because it sure looks like the risk for a clot really, really does go up. Um, the, the, the others within that, uh, hypercoagulability group of things are, are prothrombin mutation, uh, protein C deficiency, protein S deficiency and antithrombin deficiency. And all of those, uh, have a substantially lower incidence in the, in, in the population. Um, but that kind of sums up the, the hypercoagulability genetic, genetically inherited things that, that persons may have that could increase their risk for forming a clot. Yeah. And, and we all came pretty much to a consensus with everyone we could talk to that was smart at this, the tourniquet experts. If you're factor five, you're probably not a great candidate, especially if you're factor five and you're going to rehab because you had a surgery. Um, just because we don't know right now and they've just got an increased risk. So on Vical's triad, they are actually that, that one's a, we can't control that. They're hypercoagulable. They're up their risk. Kyle, it's interesting that you talked about the, the need for testing. Um, someone at the, the last course that I taught in uh, Indiana, actually, you know, I guess her dad had a clot after a surgery or an injury. And so they tested the whole family because he was factor five. Uh, you know, had a factor five license. They tested the whole family. Turned out, you know, basically the whole family had factor five. So um, she found out that way because of an incident with, with her dad. Uh, that sounds so, like, that sounds like first world hashtag America right there. Yeah. Just uh, first, throw a test first, at everyone. 
first world problems. So, but yeah, it was, um, it, it was interesting to, to hear that. So yeah, I'm, I'm on, on board with y'all. Somebody has factor five, we know about it. Maybe not the best candidate, especially after an injury or surgery. Still that incidence rate is really low. Yeah. Um, so luckily most of us, the majority of your patients aren't going to be factor five. Poor yeah, factor and, fibers. And, and I think if you like someone comes in like that and they've been tested for it, but no history of it, um, you know, whatever you're treating them for is not something that you're really worried about it causing some kind of vast, it may have caused some sort of vascular injury. Then I, I think I would probably be okay moving forward and doing BFR in that, that particular instance. Um, uh, I mean, a yeah. five to seven fold increase, we're in, we get that at minimum with surgery, it looks like. Uh, if not substantially greater with, with surgery. So. Right. Yeah. So that's where you would use this uh, risk assessment tool, maybe exactly um, to, to help you understand what it is. They, they did touch going back to the GOSPT paper uh, of how IPC um, does decrease that risk. Um, so intermittent pneumatic compression during IPC, the rapid stretch on the lumen from the accelerated blood, um, and the increase in stress due to the increased blood flow velocity catalyzes several biomechanical responses. And these responses, they're not local. So because the biochemicals enter circulation, it has a positive systemic effect. So for example, IPC done on the arm has been shown to effectively reduce the incidence of DVT in the legs. Um, so from a hypercoagulable standpoint, not factor fives, but just from decreasing hypercoagulability, this is probably where we're getting the TPA thing. Um, and you're decreasing this part of, of the triad um, by increasing TPA, liquid plumber. So from the triad, other, the only thing we've worried about so far is hereditary. You have a disease that makes your blood clot and you can't control it. So other than that, I don't see any part of this triad from a physiological perspective where we would be concerned with blood flow restriction, right? Agreed. Yeah. And we're not, we're not worried about that hypercoagulability as a standalone. It's got to be coupled with something. A hereditary. Yeah. 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 But even if it is a standalone, probably the increase, the systemic increase that we get of decreasing hypercoagulability through things like TPA um, even reduce that. So it has almost even a positive effect. You know, I think you, you mentioned it in our notes prior to this, Kyle, it's almost like this protein net protein balance where yep muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. If you look at this, your body's always clotting and breaking down clots, always clotting and breaking down clots. So you want to reduce clotting. Like it's not, you want to clot. I mean, that's, that's part of healing and part of life, but you want to reduce the chance of getting clots during periods of stasis and periods of surgery. And it looks like BFR pushes that pendulum more to, okay, we're reducing the incidence of this overall right the one, the one thing zach and you're you're more versed on all this is because i think you take them is contraceptives um <laughs> occasionally. occasionally occasionally yeah, yeah. um so am i doing this right zach <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do you want to go in though that's a question um that you know we it don't comes up a lot I mean, it yeah. comes up a fair amount. <laughs> yeah. So going to what we know about that um, from contraceptions and, and is it safe to do blood flow restriction from what you think? Yeah. So 
you know, when we take a look at contraceptives, there's just this natural increased um, risk of clotting. Um, and, um, you know, what we see is uh, individuals taking contraceptives, it's between, you know, eight to 10 per 10,000 woman years is the kind of incidence of, uh, of a VTE amongst that population. And when, when you start teasing out different types of contraceptives, um, the, the rate changes. And so second generation, which uses different hormones, um, there's a significantly lower incidence or risk of a VTE. So it's, you know, a relative risk of 2.8 compared to the third generation contraceptives, which is a, a 3.8. Um, so what's, then, what's primarily used second or third, or is it, is it just physician? Well, I, I think it's, you know, whatever the f physician recommends and then whatever the patient, um, or the individual likes. Cause I think that it's the different hormone profiles and, you know, it, I may have to consult with someone else cause I'm not quite as well versed as others, but um, there's, there's side effects with contraceptives aside from clotting, such as, uh, like headaches, I think are big ones and things like that. Mm. But yeah. An eight to 10 per 10,000 woman years is essentially, um, the incidence rate that we had for clot in general. Yeah. I mean, Actually be we, lower. It, 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 it's lower. it might even be lower. Yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, so, you know, and, and the, the guidance that we typically give when that question comes up is, yeah, there's an increased risk, but again, when you take a look, have we ever seen an individual um, or individuals, you know, taking a contraceptive and then doing BFR or throwing a clot? And we, we just haven't seen it. Right. So should we talk about that one case report? You know, since we haven't really addressed it, the one case that, that you can find in the literature, if you look at all the literature, and that was uh, an individual over in Japan, uh, instructor for uh, Katsu that was, sounds like doing upper extremity bilateral three times a week for two years and doing 30 minute to hour inflations per session, but had a history of having some kind of diffuse swelling at the collarbone on the left side and some um, pain and tenderness there for six years prior to the, the VTE event. So they went on to say thoracic outlet Paget Schroeder. So it sounds like there was significant restriction there mm -hmm. and it would be really hard to say that BFR is what caused this clot to happen. Yeah. You know, Sounds like upper extremity is less common than lower extremity. And you've got this, you know, thoracic outlet Paget Schroeder combination that would increase your risk significantly. And it's two years into doing this very chronically. And even though it doesn't match up with guidelines for application for what we would say, you know, position stand, this is best practices. It would be really hard for someone to say BFR is what caused it. Yeah. Agree. And, and the, you know, person was a total dummy um that was darwin also kicking in you know um <laughs> two year who wants to do bfr for two years straight for an hour at a time um so yeah i'm, I'm sure it was you know these other tos things that could create that and that's, that's something to mention too it's a good point ben 
the upper extremity is much more rare. Um, I know when I was researching and talking to some experts, you know, I think it's a 10% incidence rate um, in the upper extremity. And it's primarily um, folks that had central lines or pick lines in. So if you do have a patient that has a central line or had a central line, um, you, you would want to talk to the medical team um, just in general because they do, they're the ones that have the highest risk apparently of the upper extremity VTE. All right. Yeah, so, I think, you know, that I don't I wouldn't even call what that person was doing BFR, you know, I mean, I, to me, it's that was exercise really without a purpose. And I, don't, I mean, I don't know why you would be strapping a cuff on yourself and doing that. You might as well just go to the gym and, and exercise and, and do something. I mean, to me, BFR, just like any exercise, at least we prescribe prescribe in clinic, it ought to be addressing some sort of a deficiency where you can't lift heavy for it if you can lift heavy or even moderate for it then i don't i don't know why on earth you're strapping a cuff on yourself and and doing it yeah a a thin narrow cuff as well she was using a capsule device um which again kind of goes against our our guidelines um the other the other group too i don't want to forget about it is pregnancy um they are at an increased risk i didn't really read there's not really any bfr in pregnancy but what, what did you guys see on that it's it's just from the increased pressure, right, from the baby. Yeah, there, there's a natural increased risk to throw a clot or to to develop a clot, I should say. Um, you know, postpartum, um, it increases five times compared to actually during pregnancy. And then um, the risk ratio is a uh, little over or almost 4.3 uh, during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, mm-hmm to develop a clot. So what is, wait, yeah. what does risk ratio mean, Zach? Will you explain that? Cause I need, yeah, yeah. You dumb it down for me, man. Come on. So, so basically you, you look at, um, a risk ratio of one means there's, there's no risk. So everyone's the same. And then as it goes up in decimals, so like a 1.3 is a 30% increased risk. And then from there it just goes, so it's a relatively higher risk to develop a clot if you're pregnant. More than about a fourfold risk. It sounds like four, four to five fold risk increase. So, but what, what, is yeah, there any, why, and, why would it go up postpartum when, when the pressure's off? Is there, I would think they, damage because of um, all the bleeding, all the, all the. I mean, Johnny, you're a dad. Oh, the clotting. Yeah. Okay. Damage. Yeah. yeah. I didn't yeah. go into that room, man. It scared me. I was freaked out. So I just I kept my eyes closed and was was crying yeah. in the corner the whole time. That's, that's the only that's the only thing I remember is they're just like, you know, if you see like a lot of red blood in the commode, just call the nurse. <laughs> terrible. That's terrible. Uh, okay. And and that's what we've pretty much always said too. You know, if you're pregnant, let alone we don't know anything that would happen to the fetus. Um, so, you know, it's we just because we don't know, and Lord knows there's probably never gonna be a BFR pregnancy study. Um, right pregnant we basically say we don't know and there's an increased clotting risk um, in general so um, let's just not do it on this person unlike a bfr in quotation expert that spoke at a conference with me on my panel um a freaking knucklehead who said it's perfectly fine on pregnant women he sees no problems at all um go for it but he also advocated using it for an hour at a time while while swimming in the ocean um so 
Careful with what people are saying out there. It's the 20 minute rule. I've heard about this 20 minute rule. It's like the yeah. magic number. As long as you exercise for 20 minutes, all the good stuff happens. Oh, all right. Well, it has we'll go nothing to do with exercise prescription, Johnny. I don't know. Just 20 minutes. Yeah. It's just 20 minutes of, you know, do stuff. Get on, you know, flip one BOSU ball one way, the other, the other way, strap some bands on, play tickle monster and go cuff and you're good. So, right. Yeah. Systemic. Yes. Systemic. Well, and any other from the cows triad or any other groups that we want to mention that these are groups we wouldn't probably do it on right now. Um, again, if you're, if you got a question, always discuss with the medical team and the patient, but anything else that I'm missing that you guys can think of. I think we covered it. And just on the, the positive side of things for us, uh, I think the paper that we, we didn't really discuss, it would be worth talking about is the y'all's paper DOD post arthroscopy starting at week two, going to week six. So tenant lead author, you know, BFR versus control post arthroscopy and, you know, bilateral ultrasounds on everyone in the study, whether they're BFR or control, nothing to be found in this high risk period post surgically doing BFR multiple times per week for multiple weeks, you know, for basically two thirds of this high risks for six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there was mentioned in that GOSPT, there's been no blood marker studies that looked at DVT or V or VTE. Um, but there is ours where we used imaging. So there is a, a post-surgical imaging study, which saw no, no incidents at all. And, and it's been done on healthies, if you're looking from the blood marker perspective, and folks with cardiovascular disease. Um, and those blood markers were, didn't show any signs of coagulation as well. But if, and this was in that paper, if a VTE event is suspected, then BFR should not be prescribed for the patient. And I think we would all agree with that, right? Your patient walks in and I got a clot, I'm not going to yeah. do it. The magic question we always get is when can they start, you know? Clots cleared, I'm off prophylaxis. The problem with prophylaxis is if they're on thinners, then you might increase bruising from the tourniquet. So typically we're not doing it when people are on, you know, not always, but there is a risk of bruising. But, you know, I had a, a pretty high-end NFL player where the, the guys at the team were asking, is it safe to start him? He had a clot after surgery. Um, when, when would we allow him to start? What, are y'all's, what have y'all's general guidance been on that? I typically tell people, you know, if you've got uh, somebody that's been cleared on imaging and let's say you're done with prophylaxis, you know, maybe give it a couple weeks just to kind of monitor. It could be a standalone event. You know, you probably would be able to tell fairly, fairly quickly, I would think, if there's going to be any kind of recurrence. And that gives you time to explore what can you do with traditional exercise for a period of time, because let's not forget, we can make exercise harder traditionally. Yeah, maybe maybe get some things there before we decide. Man, I really have to have this tourniquet application for this individual. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the key there, Ben, is like what you said. If you have access to the imaging, so if you can run a Doppler and look at it from that standpoint, then then that's fine. But you know, in my opinion, is if you don't have access to that, I would I just hold off. And probably during that rehab experience with them is I would just do traditional exercise. Um, uh, not that I think that I have a risk of either developing a clot, um, but um, 
you know what, it's, it's just the risk reward and something that you just don't really want to be associated with is how I look at it. But um, I think, you know, like I said, the key is if you can get the image, that's fine. And that would, that can rule things out. But if you don't have, if you don't have access to that in your clinic, I think finding an alternative approach is probably best. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they do put it out. I think this is good guidance. You know, your ideal candidate for BFR, are those who can ambulate freely, they're generally active. They don't have a known um, temporary or permanent condition that alters their blood flow and can perform traditional resistance exercises safely, albeit not at high intensities, should all be relatively very safe for BFR. So those are your low hanging fruit. These other ones, you gotta take them on a case by case basis. Um, the, from the endothelial side, the ideal candidates for BFR with regard to endothelial injury are those with less traumatic injuries and invasive orthopedic surgeries, limited endothelial injury or vascular compromise, no open or unhealed soft tissue injuries and an operative site that will not be directly underneath the cuff application site. Although in our femur trials, we're putting it right over where that operative site is and we're not seeing any issues. But that's just general guidance there. The, probably the, the main risk score, there's multiple out there, the Caprini risk assessment model. You can even pull up a Caprini risk assessment calculator. There's a little app for your phone. If you work in a population that you're concerned with with this, and it's a point scale. So basically, you know, if they're 41 to 60, they get one point. If they're over their 75 years, they're already in the three point category. Um, if they've had a stroke less than a month, they're in a five point category. And, and as you start to look at all these things you take into account, um, you know, did they have surgeries, they have cancer, yada, yada. If they're greater than five, they're at high risk. Let three to four points, moderate risk, one to two, low risk. And they don't, if they're zero, they're almost no risk at all. Um, so if you want to, if you have a patient you're concerned with, run a Caprini score on them. Um, just so you have an idea of what to talk about with the medical team in that paper. We'll put those in the show notes and everything so that people okay, yeah, can just put, go there and I can, I can put all that in there and we'll put, put, it, put in all our resources that we use all the, and maybe I might even put our outline in there just so people can kind of see what we, what we yeah, do. Yeah. I think it'd be good. And, and they yeah. put possible contraindications. They had one table, um, for blood flow restriction in regards to VTE and it's pretty much our exact contra list that we use. It's almost like they cut and paste it. Um, so if, if you've gone through our course and you use our stuff, our contra list is basically, if you're following that, you're following probably best guidance that we have right now. All right. Good paper. I, I want to end with a, like a couple more quotes here. Maybe one more quote. Here's, here's their, um, I, I like the way they ended it here. The collective literature suggests that a proper prescription of BFR in the context of Verkaus triad would not heighten the risk of developing VTE. Nonetheless, clinicians need to thoroughly screen for VTE signs and symptoms and be cognizant of each patient's VTE risk factors before proceeding with BFR. Um, healthcare professionals must also make sure they have the proper training and are using the correct BFR equipment and pressure prescription techniques to ensure their patient's safety. And if you read the paper, the entire thing basically highlights the way we do it. Wide tapered cuff, self-regulating cuffs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I feel pretty positive that, that we're following best guidance. Um, I, I think cause we help kind of set up best guidance starting now. Cool. Any other thoughts, fellas? All right. That all sounds good. I was going to do BFR cause I'm stuck at home and I had a unit, a bag here and, uh, I opened it up and I'd stuffed all my old laundry in that bag and I'd, I'd put the unit in my, um, in my luggage. So 
sucks. The bad news is I didn't have a unit. The good news is I found a bunch of my old underwear and stuff that was in my bag. So it like all these, I just bought all these new vitamins and um, I've been looking for them everywhere and they were in that bag too. So Ben, we're going to have to disinfect that bag. I think before we reach. <laughs> Did you find your uh, AirPod charging you, case? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, guys, enjoy your time at home. My kids only came in twice during this call. <laughs> nice. I threw a sandbag in front of the door over here so no one could come in. So yeah. I even put a sign out like "Leave Daddy alone," and they're still like, "We're hungry. We can't find Mom." <laughs> they they used to feed themselves just fine, and now they can't freaking feed themselves these last week week and a half at home. So I don't know what's happened, man. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. All right, All right. thank you. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.